Hello, everybody. This is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me, and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for the first responder needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. So folks, I want to introduce you to a guest that uh, I have coming on today, Kim Humphrey, and he is from Parents of Addicted Loved Ones, or PAL, as they're uh, known as. And, um, you know, I really have gotten to know this organization in the last few weeks and really like the work that they're doing and wanted to introduce them to you and, and find out what it is that they do that can help you, your family, your loved ones, friends, whoever uh, is in need, and just kind of go through a history and what it is the services they provide and why that's going to be helpful to you. So with that, uh, again, I want to introduce you to Kim Humphrey. So thank you for coming on the show, Kim. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time to come on and just tell us a little bit about yourself, the organization, you know, how you came about and what it's all about, really. Sure, sure. Well, uh, when you uh, introduce yourself as somebody from an organization called Parents of Addicted Loved Ones, it sort of kind of takes the punchline out of what you're about to say next, which is that, you know, you, you've you been through this uh, with your children. And, you know, my wife and I have now been married uh, 38 years. Uh, and I will tell you that, you know, we really thought our life was uh, pretty ideal. Uh, and and as we uh, had a couple of, of children, we had two boys and, you know, I had a career in law enforcement, my wife and I just, uh, you know, we just had a really good life. And, and to, to assume that there would be a problem like this, never. Um, I just, you know, they knew right from wrong. I mean, we had a loving home and, uh, you know, I completely understand situations where there's trauma and, and issues like that where you look at it and you go, oh my gosh, you know, there's a terrible divorce or somebody died or this or this happened. That's not the case in our situation. It's not that, you know, it's totally unique. It's just the fact is, is that you learn eventually that this issue can affect any family from any background. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't have any discrimination when it comes to who's affected by it. And so, if you were to ask, you know, you know, anybody that knew us, you know, that this would not have been on their radar that our sons would end up with with a drug issue. And and honestly, they were doing fine in school, um, you know, and, and it was so odd because when our son, older son was about 15, it was I think it was just turning 15 and we received a phone call. Uh, one night we were just having a nice evening at home and a woman on the other end was talking to my wife and she said, Hey, I need to talk to you about something. And, uh, you may not remember me, but my daughter goes to school with your son and we've met actually at the school. And my wife's like, Oh yeah, I remember you. And, and she says, well, I, I, I don't know how to explain this to you, but, but the bottom line is that my, my daughter and her friends are very concerned that your son is going to overdose. Now, now we went from zero to overdose. I mean, we had no inclination 
that he even had an issue. He doesn't smoke cigarettes. He doesn't have problems at school. We don't know of any issue here. And we're just going, how could we be talking about this? And, and immediately the answer was from my wife was, you called the wrong house. Right. You, 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 you've got the wrong place. You know, this didn't, this, this isn't happening. And so they went round and round and she assured us that she knew who she was talking about. And, you know, she was very concerned and she was sorry to tell us, but we needed to look into it. And, you know, of course we immediately, my wife hangs up the phone. She's telling me this story. I'm like in total disbelief. We call our son. He's in the other room and just confront him. You know, hey, somebody just told us this. What What is going on? And, um, you know, let the let the manipulation begin. You know, what are you talking about? I would never do anything. You know me. I would. Why would you say that? And I'm thinking, huh? Well, you know what? I think maybe what we ought to do to clear all this up is it's just, you know, how about you just do a drug test? Well, why? Why? You don't trust me? Well, I should have known then. Right. I mean, immediately when you don't get an answer like that, you know that the answer is, yes, I am taking drugs. And we just didn't couldn't believe it. I mean, we, we finally got him to take a drug test and, and I could not believe that it came back positive for opioids. And so, it, you know, to jump forward, it turns out that he went over to a friend's house. He he tried uh, a Percocet that, that, you know, that uh, they had they shared um with each other and he just for whatever reason he thought it would be interesting to try it and unlike me who i take these these types of drugs and i'm like i don't like them i don't like the way they make me feel i don't want any part of them my son said it made him feel like a better person like he felt like he was somebody it felt like that he had you know this this feeling like he could you know do things that he couldn't do before that he could you know, he could actually feel better about himself. And I thought that is just the opposite of, of what that, that would do to me. Right. And uh, from that point forward, he couldn't, and, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, he couldn't not have it, is what he said. And he said, I had to find it. I had to get it. I had to do whatever it took to get it. And that's what started this, you know, spiral of things going out of control. And, and my wife and I, you know, of course, we jumped in with two feet. We're going to do everything we can. We're going to save him. You know, we're going to stop this thing right here, you know, and, you know, taking him to into, you know, see somebody and take him to the doctor, take him, you know, whatever it took. We were just like we were determined to, to fix it. And unfortunately, over the next almost 10 years, you know, that's what we tried to do. And to say that we were unsuccessful is an understatement. It just progressively went downhill. And, you know, eventually it started to affect school and it affected his ability to, you know, do normal things. And he started doing, you know, things that we would never have dreamed of, like stealing from us and, and eventually, you know, stealing from others and, and uh, just, just doing things that I just, I couldn't even fathom, you know, that was happening to our family and um, started taking more and more drugs, eventually started smoking heroin and then eventually started uh, to to uh, use heroin intravenously mm-hmm. and then adding to it methamphetamines and every other drug. Um, at one point, you know, he actually admitted to taking at least 13 or 14 different types of drugs at the same time. And uh, I just I this this amazing beautiful young man that was just 
you know, doing so well and growing up in our, you know, what I consider to be a loving family and, you know, in our church and everything else, it was just like, it didn't make any sense. And it was just devastating to us. But we were like so determined to fix it and we just couldn't. And it started to take its toll on us as a family. I mean, to the point where we were, we were getting physically sick. We were becoming reclusive. We didn't want to be around other people. And we had a younger son. He's four years, four and a half years, you know, younger than, than our older son. And, you know, he was seeing all this and, and we were just like, oh my goodness, he's, you know, but he was doing well. And he eventually he ends up going to college and he's a mechanical engineering student. He's doing fantastic. And we're like, at least, you know, he's, he's hanging in there and he's doing good. And then about two years into that, he drops out of school. And I'm like, what, what, what in the world's going on? And if you can believe it, he's just followed his brother's footsteps. And and I'm like, I, I cannot even believe it. I, I mean, we have two sons. Now they're both out there with this issue. And needless to say, my wife and I felt like we were the worst parents on the planet. I mean, we figured we must have made the biggest mistakes. We must be just horrible at what we were doing. And And clearly, you know, this wouldn't have happened if... We would have done, you know, and then fill in the blank, whatever thing you can think of that we thought we did wrong. And and it was in a moment of desperation that that my wife was online and she just was looking for anything. And I think she actually like Googled, what do you do if your kids on drugs or something? And this little seminar popped up that was going to have a speaker at it that turns out was the founder of this group called PAL. So that's how we found it and ended up going to this meeting. And it just to say that it changed our lives is, again, an understatement. I mean, I I just couldn't believe it. I thought we were the only ones, <laughs> you know, we found out we weren't alone. Nobody understood. We tried to tell people that we knew what was going on. And they, you know, and, and I mean this and the only way I can say it is they were judged. They just judged us. They were just they, they were absolutely convinced, you know, that that we must have done something. I mean, one of our good friends actually looked at us and said, what do you think you did wrong? And I'm thinking, well, I think I did everything wrong. I said, I'm about beat myself up, you know, 100 ways over what we possibly did. But the reality was, is that, you know, it, it's it's not about what we did. We did the best we could. We learned that. We learned that when we started going to the meetings. We learned that when we started being around other people that had had these same issues. And so it was just, it was so amazing to go to a meeting where we were being educated, where we were finding support. And so it just, it started to turn things around. And, um, you know, if you're interested, I can tell you kind of how it all, how Powell started and all that. And then we can talk a little bit more about where things went, but I just thought, you know, that little background about how we found it, you know, is is kind of unfortunately the way it happened is that it was just in total desperation. And thank you for sharing that story. And I, let me just ask you right now before I, I backtrack a little bit, if, if you don't mind, in, in your story before we get into how, um, you know, your your journey with Powell, um, how, how's your son doing now or your sons doing now? Well, after uh, we finally started to learn 
you know, some healthier ways to respond. Um, we were, we were finally faced with the idea that we had to, we had to set some boundaries. We had to do some things that were very different. They were almost antithetical to our, our ideas of being parent. I mean, it seems obvious that when somebody is uh, actively using, you know, uh, drugs like heroin or something that you shouldn't give them cash when they just ask for it. But you know what? When they start saying, well, you want me to get a job, you want me to do this, you know, you expect me to do, how do I do that if I don't have a phone? How do I do that if I, you know, and so you start rationalizing and and you actually just continue down this road. And and I think that's part of the issue for a parent is, is how do you how do you set a boundary and you're okay with it? You know, how do you get to where you feel like you can do something that from the outside seems like it's obvious but from your heart it's like oh i you know what if i do that and they overdose you know what if i do that and it upsets them and they go out and use more drugs and so it was over a, a, a long period of time that we slowly started to think about it differently and to try and have a different response and to try and get to where we could you know have a healthier relationship with them but this this involved, I mean, multiple arrests, multiple uh, overdoses, multiple hospital stays. Uh, I mean, it just became almost to the point of, you know, unbelievable that they even were surviving through this. And we were yeah. pretty sure they were not going to, or they were going to end up in prison for the rest of their lives. And. Um, they eventually got arrested, both of them, they ended up together, got arrested on some pretty significant um, charges. And I thought that was going to turn it around. And when I got, I actually got a call from somebody I work with in, in uh, law enforcement here, and they, and they just said, look, you know, we have your sons in custody. And, and we really, I guess, technically today, I don't have to put them in jail, but they're facing some pretty serious charges you know, what do you, what do you want me to do? And, uh, I remember telling my friend, I said, you know what, I think what you need to do is whatever you think is going to keep them alive. And he says, I think they need to go to jail. And I said, well, then that's what needs to happen. And, you know, off they went. And these two all American looking kids are now sitting in a jail facing some pretty serious stuff. And like I said, I thought that was going to be the end of it. I thought that was going to be, okay, I'm going to turn it around. But it just continued. You know, they got out eventually pending the, the charges, you know, moving forward. And they just kept going down this road. And they just kept doing more and more. And eventually my wife and I had to really set some boundaries of we can't take this. It's it's destroying us. And to get to your point, you know, where are they? Well, it got to the, it got to the point where our son was in and out of the hospital so often that I just was the older one in particular. I was just convinced that he wasn't going to make it. And we eventually, now having neither one of them at home and neither one of them around, decided that, you know, we just had to try and take care of ourselves. And when it came Christmas one year, we were just like, okay, we, we, we can't sit around this house and feel sorry for ourselves again. And, you know, they're out there, they're doing what they're doing and we're miserable. And we booked a vacation where we were going to drive, you know, to uh, 
New Mexico and just do some things at Christmas time that we had never done, you know, never been there and seen before. So we were like, okay, we're going to just do that and try and take our mind off of all this. Well, I'll be darned if the day we're, we're, we're leaving, the phone rings and our older son's in the hospital and he's a mess. And they're saying, you know, he's really sick and, you know, he wants to see you. And Oh my gosh. So we finally, we debate about it. We finally just said, okay, we're going to go. We're going to go see him in the hospital. We're going to cancel our vacation. So we went and sat with them for almost two weeks while he sat in there trying to get better and, and promising us the entire time that, you know, if this was it, he was going to go right into treatment again and he was going to get to taken care of and all that. And of course, you know, our hopes went up and we were sure that maybe this would do the trick. Well, unfortunately, as we've learned is that, you know, once he got out of the, the hospital within two days, he was right back at it. And, you know, to kind of fast forward another year, which involved him actually leaving the state, ending up homeless in California and Los Angeles and other places, uh, eventually finding his way back to where we are in Arizona. And he just, it was just like, okay, you know, when is this going to change? And we had just started to like, okay, we have, we had started really practicing what we had learned in these PAL meetings and Christmas came around again. And if you can believe it, we, we rebooked the same thing we we're going to do. And I know this sounds like I'm, you can't make these stories up, but it sounds like I'm just, you know, exaggerating, but I'm telling you the day we're leaving the phone rings mm. and he's in, the he's in the hospital again. And I'm like, and, and this nurse is on the phone. He's not even on the phone. And she says, your son's in here and he's extremely sick. He's got his lungs aren't properly functioning. He's got, you know, on and on and on. And I'm like, okay. She says, so I just wanted to let you know, cause he's asking for you and, and he's really not in very good shape. He can't really talk to you. And I just remember sitting there on the phone. I'm looking at my wife. We've got all our stuff packed. We're sitting there ready to go out the door. And I just, I said, you know what? I said, do you think he's going to die? And she's like, well, that's a strange question. And I said, well, could you just tell me, what do you think? Is he, is he going to survive this? Is, you know, how is he doing? She says, well, I don't know. And I said, well, is there somebody there that can answer my question? And she says, well, the doctor just walked in and hang on, you know, and, and I'll be darned. She puts this doctor on the phone and he goes, what is your question? I said, I want to know if you think my son is going to survive this. He goes, well, we're going to do the best we can. I go, could you answer? You know, can you tell me? What do you think? In your opinion, is he going to live? He says, well, that's a very strange question. I go, I go well, do you think he's going to live? And he goes, we're going to do the best we can. And to answer your question, I, I do think he will probably survive this. I said, thank you very much. Would you please do me a favor and tell our son that we love him, but we're going on vacation and we're not coming to the hospital. And I can only imagine somebody who's listening to that and they're like, wow, you know, that's cold hearted. And I'm going to tell you what it is. That's survival for us. Yeah. And it was like, I couldn't do that one more time. I, I think I was going to drop over dead if, if that happened again. I was either going to have a heart attack or, you know, I don't know. It was bad. But you know what? That that hospital stay. Our son tells us today that, you know what, I sat there and I realized 
I had to do something different. I could not continue this. My family is now having to stay at arm's length from me because of what I've done. And he said, you know what? He looked up and he was like, I'm gonna, I need, I need something. And God, I need you to get me out of this because I can't get out of it. And when he got out of there, he checked himself into a treatment center again. He went through that program, went straight into a program uh, in, in uh, another part of uh, Arizona that was a, a longer term program that he checked himself into, found it on his own um, and went there, spent almost a year at that. And uh, that was just about uh, coming up on uh, seven and a half years ago. And, you know, he he managed to completely turn everything around. Wow. In the process of that, uh, my, my younger son, who was out there doing it with them, was still out there. And my older son said, look, we're going to just do what we can. He goes, he called me one day while he was up in that treatment center. He says, I got all my buddies up here. We're going to just keep praying. We're going to, we're, I'm going to keep calling Andrew and I'm going to try and find him, you know? And I'm like, okay. I said, uh, I said, I don't know where he is. I don't, I can't find him. And, uh, about 30 days later, he called me and told me, he says, I found him, dad. I found him. He goes, he's, he's not good. He goes, but I found him and he answered the phone and there's some guys, I got them to go over there. They're going to get him and they're going to go get him and they're going to bring him up here. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe it. They finally, you know, I hadn't seen him. I laid eyes on him and I don't even know how many months, you know, and uh, they did, they found him, they got him up there, but he was so sick. They had to transport him back to take him to the hospital. And he had to spend some time in the hospital before he could go into a treatment program. But he ended up at the same time that that was the turning point for him. And so today, you know, they, they managed to work through their, their criminal uh, issues. They, they, you know, ended up on probation and ended up doing some treatment things and ended up finally eventually getting that through all of that. And today, you know, by the grace of God, you know, they are both not only healthy, but, they're homeowners. Uh, they have good jobs. You know, they're, they have, uh, my older son now um, yeah, has a family and we, I have a granddaughter that I never in a million years thought I would have. And all I can say is, is that, you know, when I thought there was no hope, you know, there is. And it's just been a, it's been an amazing journey. Yeah, they say there's a saying in recovery, and that is don't quit five minutes before the miracle happens. And and I know it's tough, and I know that people that are listening to this find it tough because you, you can go on for years and years and years going through these types of things. But there's a fine line between um, not quitting five minutes before the miracle happens and enabling <laughs> the, the behavior, as, as you saw. And... So you learned a lot. You learned a lot, obviously, in how to deal with this, and Pal was a big part of it. So if, if you would, I'm, and I'm so glad to hear that your your sons are doing uh, fine because that's the miracle. That's the miracle of recovery. But Pal was a big part of helping you, and that's the focus of this of today's episode. And that is, you know, we're not so, so much focused on the addict in this episode as 
the family members, which is really where you guys focus on that. And could you maybe tell walk us through that, uh, Powell, and, and how uh, your association with Powell came about and what the program is? Yeah, so back in 2006, uh, a gentleman by the name of Mike Speakman was a, a substance abuse counselor over at a, a local treatment center here in the Phoenix, uh, Arizona area. And uh, he noticed this issue of a lot of parents and a lot of young people coming in, younger as in the 20s, 30s, uh, and their parents involved in this situation, obviously, because they're, they're concerned. And uh, he just he noticed that there's just no other relationship like that between a parent and a child. I mean, there's spousal relationships, there's, you know, siblings, all the other relationships. But it, when it really comes down to it, there's a different dynamic between a parent and a child. And it creates a, an issue where it can be something that can be extremely helpful, but it can also be something where if, if not dealt with in a healthy way, unfortunately, I think we as parents can actually contribute to the, to the problem, mm-hmm. not help. And I think that's what he started to see was that, you know, these parents are blinded when it's their son or their daughter. They just can't see the forest for the trees. And they just, you know, so they're, they're, they're easily manipulated. And yet, on the other hand, families have a tremendous influence over their loved one. And so if you could turn that into a healthy influence, well, then in a roundabout way, back to what you just said, if you can help the family get healthy, so the parents get healthy, grandparents get healthy, the rest of the people that are dealing with this person get healthy, that's a wonderful thing. And it, my wife and I got healthy. That was a wonderful thing. But you know what? When we got healthy, that influence can't help but be a part of how it affects your loved one. Mm-hmm. And so there is a definite relationship between you get a healthy family it brings the chances of the loved one getting the help they need up tremendously and that's been something they've been showing through research over the last number of years pretty significantly that if you can get uh, people around somebody that are dealing with them in a healthy way then it increases their chances of actually seeking and and getting recovery and into recovery. And so part of that is, and I get into that in just a little bit, but we've actually been looking at that through PAL from a research standpoint of not only helping the parents, but how does that help their their loved one? But again, back in 2006, you know, uh, Mike Beaton started this meeting. It was just one meeting. It was at one facility. And over a course of time, it just started to kind of become more and more, attended and and uh, they had a lot of people showing up at this meeting and he started to realize it was a little bit you know uh, difficult to keep control of it so he started asking the parents that were there if they lived in a different part of town to maybe facilitate a meeting near them and it started to kind of grow and and by about 2014 there was about a dozen meetings around the valley and my wife and i were one of those we had, we had gone to his meeting and then he had come to us and asked us to start a meeting on our side of town. And in 2014, I retired from uh, law enforcement. And uh, I have to tell you, you know, it was September and I was like, okay, I put in 32 years and I'm 
retired. <laughs> I, I put in my time and I'm going to enjoy my retirement and I have all kinds of, you know, things I want to do. And I'll be darned. It was within one week that Mike Speakman comes up to me and he says, Hey, Kim, he goes, I need your help. He goes, I'm, I'm 70 years old. I, I'm, I've been doing this for a while and I'm trying to write a book about it and I'm trying to, to cut back. And honestly, I just don't know what to do, but this, this pal is just, it's growing. And there's all these people asking me about it. And I just, I need help. I don't, I don't know what to do with it. Can you help me? And I go, I just retired. And he goes, exactly. <laughs> so now you got the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but you know what? It had benefited us so much. And so I just looked at him and I said, okay. I said, what can we do? So we got a group of parents together. And uh, in early 2015, he handed over all of PAL to this group of 12 parents. We formed it as a nonprofit. Uh, they asked me to to uh, to chair the board. It was 100% volunteer. We had no money, we, but we did incorporate as a nonprofit. And uh, there were, like I say, about a dozen meetings uh, around Arizona. And there had been one that some women in um, Indiana had somehow found out about it, got a hold of uh, Mike Speakman, and they had started a meeting in Indiana. And so when we took it over, we sort of immediately started working on cleaning up the website, you know, putting together some materials and some training and some other things to help, you know, be able to allow this to expand because it's a peer-to-peer -peer program. So the only way a meeting starts is there's a parent who's dealing with this that's willing to learn how to be the facilitator for the meeting. And then we would provide the materials and all that. So we had to start kind of raising some money to buy the materials and then to you know, ship these things and all that. Well, flash forward, you know, 2000, early 2015 to today, we went from those few meetings to now we have meetings in roughly 40 states in the United States. Um, if it weren't for COVID last year, we would have been in every state. I mean, we were just growing so fast when literally, you know, meetings, as you know, everything got shut down. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't meeting, you can't meet in person. So we had to do the quick shift to as many meetings as we could go virtual and uh, and now we're sort of seeing it kind of in kind of in between we've got the majority of our meetings back in person but we still have some virtual and of course as you know we don't really know where things are going to be in the next few months so uh, that being the case we've been growing significantly um, in the last three to four months i mean people uh, we're, we're getting anywhere from 30 to 60 inquiries a month on just, you know, what does it take to get a meeting going? And uh, so, you know, that doesn't always translate into them starting one, but we're, I think we've got at least about a dozen meetings starting in the next, you know, six to eight weeks. Oh, wow. And they're just, it's just, um, it's just amazing. But now we have, we have staff, uh, you know, we could, we got to the point where we couldn't do it as an all volunteer group. They, they asked me to, to step into this role, which I didn't, you know, that was not in my plans again, but, but uh, honestly, this is so rewarding. I mean, to see people's lives change, to see people get better. Um, and, you know, and you know, as well as I do, not everybody gets better from this yeah. and, and uh, not everybody survives this. And yet, even 
even when we have somebody who loses their son or their daughter to this, this horrible disease, we consistently have them coming back and saying, you know what, I was, for, for, for what, lack of better terms, I was prepared. And I want to thank you for, for being there for me and being a part of my life. And, and, uh, and I knew that that was a possibility. And we all do. We live with that every day. And yet, bringing hope, bringing education, helping people by walking alongside them in this, this horrible, horrible disease um, of addiction is just, it's what somebody did for us. And now we want to do it for others. And so I'm just thankful, you know, that others were willing to, to be there for us and share their experiences and help us. And, and so now that's what we do. Yeah, it is. It's there. There's so much to talk about here. So let me uh, let me just stop for one second and uh, talk about our sponsor, and then we'll come right back. And I want to continue this with you because this is very fascinating. So this episode is sponsored by FHE Health. FHE Health has been providing life changing behavioral health services for more than 20 years. They treat substance abuse and mental health disorders in an individualized, and comprehensive approach. Recognizing the specialized treatment needs for of this first responder community, they've created Shatterproof a dedicated program for law enforcement, fire rescue, and similar communities to receive treatment among peers. They're experienced in providing privacy and working with unions for employment. FHE Health is committed to providing the best care experience for our patients, for their families, and for our communities. To learn more at FHEHealth.com. So you you mentioned, um, Kim, uh, about support. You know, initially you were, you were going out to get some support, you know, from uh, not necessarily friends, because you were talking about how you were living a reclusive life. But you know, many of us are in the in a faith based community of one form or another, and and going to church, and that's very common. And that was, you know, certainly um, if if you know my story, that was something that my wife was doing. She was reaching out. But the unfortunate part of that is that there's a lot of stigma associated with addiction, and not just the stigma, but a lot of people just don't understand addiction. They don't understand the disease model of it. They don't under to many to many people it is a moral issue, strictly a moral issue. And people don't understand how complex, deadly, and disease-like the um, addiction is. And so well-meaning people sometimes say the wrong things, do the wrong things, and give really bad advice and information. And it sounds like that's what you discovered. And that's why, you know, anybody that's listening to this program, I, you know, be a part of your faith-based community. I'm not saying not do that because that's very, you know, faith has been very, has been vital in my own personal recovery. However, um, people having said that, you know, there are people that work in this field and understand this field, and this is what they do. And you need to understand the nuances. There's a lot of education that you need to receive about addiction um, because it's, it's oftentimes not what people think. Uh, Addiction is very deadly it's progressive. It's progressive and deadly. And you need to know that. And you need to know uh, that what to do, what not to do, and uh, be able to point someone in the right direction if and when they want to get help. Uh, would you agree with all of that, Kim? Well, and I, I not only agree, but I think that it just, it can't be emphasized enough that you know, understanding this and realizing what an impact it has on our community. Yeah. Uh, you know, the bottom line is, is you could take all cancers combined and more people suffer from substance use disorder than all of those. 
uh, you know, we're dealing with a pandemic right now. And yet, you know, we're losing, if you start going back over every year, just in, you know, overdoses and deaths associated with, you know, alcohol and drugs, you know, it far surpasses anything that we're dealing with right now from a perspective of a, of a health issue. And so, you know, our society coming to grips with the fact that this is affecting families across the board, step one. Step two, what you just said, understand that, you know, I was I was in law enforcement, you know, so I'll, I'll tell you right now, you know, you, you deal with people that are on drugs and you can be pretty quickly jaded about the fact that, you know what, probably the best thing is, is just, you know, this person probably just needs to be arrested, you know, whatever goes through your mind. You know, and if you're if you're in an area like in Phoenix, uh, where it's nice and you know the sun's shining here a lot, we have a lot of of people that stand out on corners and solicit, you know, for money. They try and you know give they hold up signs and you know they they try and give you give them money. And I will tell you that the majority of people can see those individuals, and you pull up there and you can pretty much tell that they probably are using some sort of substance and they're in bad shape and i will say that most people look at those individuals and say you know wow person probably just they probably should call the police and get this person off the street and you know put them in jail because there's no point and that's the first thing that goes through your brain you know this is a criminal this is somebody who shouldn't be out here and that's you know it and and uh you know as a law enforcement officer you know yeah, that, that was kind of my go to thought. You know, I see people doing things like that and I'm thinking, why would you do that? You know, that didn't make any sense. It probably the best answer to this is, you know, the criminal justice system. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I, I you know, <laughs> this affects your family. Mm -hmm. And and the next thing you know, um, you know, I'm driving up to a corner and I see somebody standing there. And uh, you want to know the first thought that goes through my brain? That's somebody's son or daughter and i'll bet you they're worried sick about them and i bet you that person really needs the help you know that they they deserve to get and the problem is 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 what you said is if you really look at this as a moral issue well this doesn't really add up my sons know right from wrong they knew right from wrong they were they grew up understanding that but when you have uh substances that basically take over your brain and the ability for your brain to make, you know, good choices and good judgment and all of that, you know, you start to understand, well, wait a minute, you know, yeah, there's some choice involved in all of this. But the problem is, is that that's been affected and now they really do make bad choices. And so as you start thinking about that, well, what do you do about it? You know, how do you resolve that? Well, the good news is, is there is treatment and there are ways to deal with it. And there is hope and there are people to turn it around. And and yes, my sons did things that I am you know, sure they're not happy about. I'm not happy about. But if you think that they're they're hopeless and they're they're pointless, there's no point in even trying to help them, you know, that they would never get better. Well, that's just not true, you know, because look at them. They're tax-paying homeowners and i and let me tell you more importantly i am very proud of my sons and, I, and i'm going to tell you what i'm proud about it not because they have they have a decent jobs not because that they they're homeowners none of that that's good that's wonderful but i'm going to tell you that they have 
an amazing character. They are loving and they are kind and they are compassionate and they are giving. And you know something? That is not something that you find in young people today. You know, this entitled attitudes and things like that. I was dealing with that. And maybe this is what it took, but I will tell you, you know, I could not be more proud of the fact that, you know, when my son sees something that needs, you know, somebody that needs help, somebody that needs something, they're the first ones to jump in. And it's amazing to me. And so I know it's not, this is not a moral defect. You know, this is something that can affect anybody from any walk of life. And the more we can help people understand the addiction uh, model as a disease model and understand it from that, even if you, even if you can't accept the fact that it's a disease for whatever reason, understand this, science will, will show that treating it that way works. Mm -hmm. And so if you do, then you can see the results that we see. And so I don't know if that, that, you know, sounds good to you, but I just, you know, I am always on the, it seems like I'm always on this issue of, you know, do you really understand what happens when somebody takes, you know, something, do you really understand how it affects them? Do you really, under, and the answer is, they're like me. The answer is no, they don't. No, so, and it, and it, when we say that it's a disease, it's a disease of the mind and the body. And it progresses to the point where, as you mentioned, that it, the addiction hijacks the brain. And then the person that you're dealing with oftentimes does not see. You have to understand the person, the addict that you're dealing with does not see what you are seeing. Their brain is not letting them see what you see. And right. it's not uncommon. And I don't know if your, your son's fit into this category, but I know that I fit into this category that years later, you know, God willing, you get into recovery, long-term recovery. You look back and you go, what was that all about? You know, why did I do that? Uh, that was crazy. What What was I doing? But but the addict didn't see it at the time. It's only through years of recovery and and um, the reshaping of the mind, um, uh, repairing the damage that's been done, um, restoring neurological functioning, getting the um, um, all the different you know biochemistry in the brain back. Uh, in yep. then they look back and they go, I can't believe I was doing that, and. This notion that that everybody out there is a, is a criminal, that everybody's homeless, everybody um, can't hold a job, that, that's absolutely not true at all. I, I, I know in, in my journey in recovery, uh, some of the best and the brightest people I've ever met, some of the most intellectual people, artistic people have been in recovery. Um, it's actually kind of unusual, if you, if you think about it, in the arts and literature fields in particular, there's a very high rate of, a, of addiction that's kind of, kind of interesting. Um, I don't. I don't know. For those of you that are maybe looking at PhD uh, topics to write on your PhD thesis, maybe you can do something on that. You know, mm -hmm. looking at the uh, connection between the arts, uh, the art, arts and literature fields, and, and addiction, but it seems to be pretty high. Um, very, very, very intellectual people. So yeah. um, the education is a big part of it, and so that's. So if somebody is interested in P, uh, PAL or, or parents. Um, um, for addictive, addicted loved ones, what can they expect? You know, what, what, because you mentioned that there's courses and materials that are out there. So what would you be exposed to if you attended one of these meetings? So, you know, first and foremost, we have a website. It's palgroup, 
palgroup.org. So palgroup.org. And if you go there, you know, we have a lot of material on there that, you know, not only explains who we are and where to find a meeting and how to start a meeting and all of that, um, but really is, is kind of that starting point of, you know, finding your way into the, you know, hopefully the help that will, will get you through, you know, this issue. And, and so, you know, starting off with finding if there's a meeting near you. Now we do, we do offer some virtual meetings that are, we call them national virtual meetings. If there's no meeting near you and you just don't feel like you can start a meeting uh, four nights a week, we have virtual meetings that, that you can attend. So it doesn't matter if there's not a meeting there, you can attend. Of course, a virtual meeting by its nature is never going to be a substitute for an in-person meeting. Right. I just can't say anything else. I mean, it, it's helpful. It's useful. It's good. We offer it. But if you can be around people in a physical sense at some point when it's safe to do so, that's the way to go. But you're going to show up in a meeting. You're going to, you know, hopefully be, um, you know, uh, in a place where you feel not only welcome, but you're going to you're going to realize that you're not alone. And, you know, one of the things that almost everyone suffers from that shows up in a meeting and I, I chuckle at it now because it was something that I did too. Um, but if I've heard this, I've heard it a thousand times. Well, my situation's a little different. And then they start in and they start to explain the why it's different. And I just refer to that as chronic uniqueness. Yeah, I'm terminally unique. <laughs> yeah. And so you start, you start listening to that. And then eventually what they'll find out is, is their situation isn't unique. You know, that, that, the one thing about this issue is, is that there is a curriculum to it, you know, and that there are pretty predictable things that start to happen. And so if you can learn that, you know, and, and come to a meeting where you're around people that have experienced that, well, then you're going to show up. You're going to have uh, an educational topic. You'll go over something that has to do with addiction and recovery. It could be on delayed emotional growth. You know, hey, what is that? That's a weird word. What does that mean? You know. And then you start to understand why are they acting so immature, you know, and it just doesn't make any sense. They really make these ridiculous decisions that seem like they're like 14 years old instead of 24 or 34 um, or 54. We've had people that have uh, come to our meetings that are in their 80s dealing with their almost 60 year olds. So it's it's all up and down, you know, the map. But you're going to learn. You're going to go through the lesson. You're going to talk about it. Again, this is peer-to-peer. This is you with people that are like you. And we provide, you know, a series of questions. And then, you know, they ask those and you go through those. And then after that, you go into an issue of or or an opportunity to share and your experiences. So if if something's been going on in the last week, because our meetings are weekly, then you know, you can say, hey, this is, you know, what's going on. Uh, one of the things that sort of separates it out from different types of meetings, like, for example, if you're if you're familiar with uh, any type of AA meeting, um, you know, a lot of people go to, um, obviously, AA meetings. My sons both go to AA meetings. Uh, but AA meetings don't allow for what's called crosstalk. You know, right. it's, it, it's just that's something that they just that's part of their their experience there well we do the opposite it's like we encourage crosstalk 
that's solicited. So in other words, um, I'm sitting there and I say, oh, well, last week, you know, this is what happened. And my son's, you know, he went into this treatment program, but he's about to get out and he, he wants to come home. And I just don't, you know, do you guys think that's a good idea? Well, you can ask that. So you can solicit from the group, you know, do you want to give me any suggestions? Because I don't know what to do. And then they can say, well, I'll tell you what happened when I did that. Or I'll tell you, this, you know, this is my experience. And if you do let him come home, you ought to think about, you know. And so you'll get this, you'll get this direct feedback from the individuals that are in the room. And, you know, then you walk out and you're like, okay, I learned something you know, and, and I'm being supported in the decisions that I'm making. And hey, if you choose to do what's suggested, great. If you choose to not do it, okay. You know, there's no judgment. It's like, we're there to support you. And the goal is, is that you're going to find joy in your life, regardless of what the choices your loved one makes. But in reality, you know, we've been doing some uh, evaluation of how some professors at Northern Arizona University have over the last four years. And in, the, in their most recent, you know, uh, research that they've done, they're showing a direct correlation between families getting healthier and your loved one seeking recovery. Mm. So it's a it's a tremendous opportunity for you. So don't come. I always tell people if they show up, they're like, if they're like me, you walk in and you're like, tell me how to fix my son. That's what I want. Just tell me how to fix him. And, and the answer that came to me after I was sitting there for a few weeks and I finally challenged the facilitator, like, I don't hear you telling me how to fix my son. And the facilitator looked at me and says, well, that's because I, you can't fix your son. Right. You can work on yourself, but you don't get to control other people. And I'm like, I didn't like that answer because <laughs> you know? as a parent, you're like, that's my kid. I'm going to fix my kid. Right. And it's like, no, you can't. But what's interesting is, is if you can start dealing with what's wrong with you. And I was like, what's wrong with me? I didn't do anything. And it's like, well, let me tell you what's wrong with me. One was I had a lot of issues, like the fact that I was extremely codependent and, you know, and I was enabling and I was I didn't set boundaries and I was wishy washy with pretty much everything I did. And I treated my kids like children instead of adults. And I didn't even see it. I just thought I was being normal. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. And then I realized I'm trying to tell them everything, you know, and I didn't even realize that's not an adult to adult relationship. I'm treating them like they're they're 12 years old. And no wonder, you know, they resent me and don't want to, you know, listen to me. And it's like and I don't accept it. You know, I didn't say condone, but I wasn't going to accept the fact that that's what they were doing. I was like, no. You know, that's unacceptable. You, I, and not only is it unacceptable, but and then I started to lecture them, you know, and I'm like, that didn't help. <laughs> it's like, you know, did, did you know drugs are bad for you? Uh, yeah, they do. You know, <laughs> and it's like so. But that's what we resort to. And we don't realize that if we would start changing the way we talk, you know, we can do all of this in a loving way. But you can set boundaries and you can say you know, things differently and you can talk to them differently and you can find healthy ways to, to be a part of their life and, and, you know, support sobriety, support recovery, you know, support it. And that doesn't even mean financially. That may just mean good for you, you know, and, and I'm with you in spirit. I'm going to keep praying for you, you know, whatever it happens to be. But the, the reality is, is we're not there to tell anybody what to do. We are there to support people as they walk through this journey 
and that you learn from each other, you'll find healthier ways. And in the end, if you want a good chance to see that reflecting in the lives of your loved one, then come to the meeting. And you know what? If it's not for you, that's okay. If, if you come in and you're, you're listening and you go, nope, no, I, you know, and I've had people say this, I will never stop giving them money. It's like, okay, nobody told you not to. But I hope that they realize that when you give somebody that's actively using money in any way, shape or form, probably what you're doing probably is you're just probably giving them access to more of what they're doing. But yeah. if you choose to do that, you know, that's what you choose to do. But it's hard. It's hard to make those decisions. And if you have people around you that say, yes, you can cut off the cell phone. And it's not your responsibility to provide them with that. Really? I thought it was. No, they're 35 years old. I think they can figure out how to get their own cell phone. Really? <laughs> you know, you're just like, no, that doesn't make any sense to you. Because you're just so sure that you have to be a part of this whole solution. And it's like, nope. You know, I'm guessing in your situation, you can you can attest to the fact that, you know, this is something you had to go through, you know, and your journey is different than mine. So. Yeah, I, I think what it, in, in my case, what what it came down to is I had to understand that sobriety had to be mine. And I think that that's that's what we, we miss in this whole conversation when we're, we're dealing with the, the loved ones of of addicts and alcoholics is. Um, you're not going to get someone sober. Um, there's a, a famous saying in, in Al-Anon in that it's the four C's. You can't, uh, you did not cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it, but you can sure as heck contribute to it. And I always loved that that saying, um, you know, but you, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. And that's, that's for the loved one. Um, at the end of the day, uh, recovery is... For that person and it must be their journey because if, if it doesn't come from them if it does not come internally from an internal motivation then there, it's not going to be a lasting recovery that's that's for sure but what about the loved ones um the loved ones um you know we talk about how you need help as well and you say what do you mean i need help that they need help no you need help too because you um because because their drugs and alcohol are affecting you as well. And you may say, well, no, it doesn't. Well, it actually does. Step one in AA is, I'm powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. And you think, well, that doesn't affect me if I'm the loved one. Well, it does because that person's use of drugs or alcohol affects you. And, you, and you're powerless over it. But you, you have to get well and you have to understand what you need to do for yourself and, and oftentimes we try to prevent that that bottom. And and I heard it said once that um, we shouldn't um, we we shouldn't cause a bottom, but we shouldn't prevent it either. Because sometimes that that bottom, like in the story that you told with your 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 children, um, it was that bottom. That was that was your bottom, but it was also their bottom. They they needed to experience that and. It, had they not experienced that, then it's it's likely that they wouldn't be where they are today. It's painful. Recovery is painful. And unfortunately, we as human beings oftentimes need to experience pain because pain's a great motivator. And, you know, families are, and I know in the work that I've done with families, the families are the most difficult part of the equation to deal with because they're just people, they're just like, I, I can't do that. I can't do that to my, my son or my daughter because it's it's cruel. 
Well, I don't know if it really is or if it isn't, but it is difficult. I know that. And I do know that by being surrounded with, with other people that are going through the same thing that you are is, is very helpful as well. So this is a, a fantastic service that you're providing. Well, all I can do is keep going back to the fact that it saved us. And, you know, these yeah. meetings are offered for free. I mean, there's no cost to go to these. You know, certainly we're a nonprofit. Certainly we, we need donations. And we certainly hope you'll go on powergroup.org and support what we do so that we can provide this. But when it comes down to the person showing up at the meeting, you know, there's no cost to do that. The, the reality is, is these are people that want to help other people that have been down this road. And and it's it, it is I don't even know what, how to describe it other than I almost lost my mind. I mean, I got to the point where I was physically ill and mentally ill to the point of, you know, I couldn't get up out of bed. I couldn't go to work. I couldn't do anything because all I could do was just fall into this deep depression of, you know, my sons are going to die. And, you know, and it took a lot of work for me to, you know, finally get up and go see, you know, somebody. And, you know, my wife, thank God, you know, was able to get me in to see somebody and to start working through this. And then, you know, through the help of Pal and, and others to realize that, you know, I there is something I can do. I can take care of myself and I can become healthy and I can be a role model to my sons. And that is what was I, I just missing in all this is that I kept thinking they're not they're not looking at me. And it's like, yes, they are. And if they see you getting help for yourself, if they see you focusing on on self-care and taking care of yourself, then what is the message that you're sending them? That, yeah, this is, this is there. There is a way out of problems, and and it's this, and and the opposite. And this is hard to accept sometimes. And I and I know parents. They they hear us say this in meetings, and they hear some of us, and they're like, "What?" And we're like, you know, the last thing you want to do is every time they call you and they're in a crisis, is for you to start crying on the phone, and for you to just start falling apart every time. And I'm like, well, well, but it's, and I'm like, but think about it. If you do that, what message are you sending? I mean, I'm not going to say that there's an excuse to use a substance, but I think you just gave them one more. They ruined your life. And, and they're already depressed. They're already thinking, you know, that they're making a mess of everything. And now add to it that they've wrecked their family's life. It's like, no, when you talk to them, you want to be encouraging. You want to be, you know, frankly, it's like I, we had to learn to just have a completely different reaction to everything they said. It was like, oh, wow, that, you know, you had a lot going on because you'd call up in a crisis. You know, wow, that's terrible. You know, and and uh, but you know what? You know, your mom and I, we, we, we got to get going. We're, we're on our way over to uh, see our friend. We're going out to a movie today. What? You don't you don't want to sit here and just listen to me tell my you know story of all the problems that I'm having? And it's like, you know what, son, I have full faith and confidence that you're gonna figure this out. You know, we love you and we we just believe in you and we know you're gonna figure this out. We gotta go. Yeah. That's that's a it tough is. way to do it, but sometimes the most effective. But you know, then they, they, what are they hearing from you? Well, that you believe in them, like you just said. It's their deal. I believe, and I, and even if you, 
even if you're not sure you even believe they can get better, do it anyway. Because you know what? I hate to say that fake it kind of thing, but if you have to, that's the message I wanted to send my sons is I do believe in you. I believe you're going to figure this out. Right. And you don't need me. And you need to figure it out because you're the one that needs to be in, in recovery. And, and I can't do it for you. I can't, I can't get sober for you. You have to get sober. Yep. Yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to, but I couldn't. No. <laughs> so, well, this is really good stuff. Well, I, you know what, Kim, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And, and I just really appreciate you taking the time because I think this is a fantastic resource for the people that are out there. And once again, um, you know, reach out to, to Kim and uh, Parents of Addicted Loved Ones, and the website is palgroup.org, right? That's palgroup.org. Kim, is there uh, any other way? Can they uh, reach out to you directly, or uh, is there a phone number that they can call, or do you just prefer that they go through the website? Yeah, so they can They can um, absolutely. Uh, the You know, the number one place I would start would be, you know, on the website in the sense of, you know, resources and all of that. Uh, but we have two phone numbers. And uh, the one I would suggest, uh, if they want to talk to somebody, we have a peer uh, volunteers that are on this phone uh, or have this phone seven days a week from 8 to 8, um, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. They'll, they'll generally answer. They'll call you back. And if you have questions about the website or how to find a meeting or, or things like that, this is not a, you know, I'm in a crisis and I need, you know, a crisis help or anything like that. But it's absolutely a peer that is interested in, you know, walking you through, you know, either our website or how to get into that, you know, a meeting or the help that you need. And that, that phone number is 480-300-4712. 480-300-4712. And again, those are peers that are going to answer that phone and I'd be happy to talk to you about, you know, what what it is that you're looking for to, to hopefully get some help that uh, maybe you need. So, okay. Did you say there was a second phone number as well, or just that one? So we do have an office phone number. So if you have an interest in something that's administrative, so you want to call the PAL office for some reason, you're also welcome to do that. And that phone number is 602-512-1454. Uh, 602-512-1454 and that's normal business hours we have somebody here at the office well fantastic well thank thanks again for coming on the show i really appreciate it hey i really appreciate you taking the time and uh and uh congratulations on all that you're doing and i know that it's uh, making a difference so thank you for what you do well th- thank you i appreciate this we do this we do this for each other we really do and, um, you know, folks, uh, once again, this episode has been sponsored by uh, sponsored by FHE Health. According to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty to find out more at FHEHealth.com. And, folks, as I always like to say, I don't represent any group. Uh, I, I don't represent anyone, anyone other than myself. My only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it's helped me, and maybe it's going to help you too. If I've said anything or if Kim has said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, just then just discard it. But try to take away something that you can use for yourself and try to use that to help others as well because that's what we do in recovery ultimately. We help ourselves along the way, and we help to impart the knowledge we've gained to others as well. So with that, please visit uh, my Facebook site, which is Recovery is Possible, 
and our website, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. Let me know how I'm doing and let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing about because I'd love to hear from you. And you guys, take care. We will see you next time.